Well, good morning, church. I am Ed, and um, it is Christmas Eve. This is great. Church on Christmas Eve. Um, We have even more church, if this isn't enough church um, for you. We've got a couple more services later on today that you're welcome to come and and attend with us as well as um, as we really sing and as we worship and as we celebrate all that Christmas means. Um, We've got services at uh, 2.30 and at 4. I think I've got them up on my slides here. There we go. So we've got those, and then you've got info on that in your bulletin as well. Um, This morning, we're going to be looking at John chapter 1. So if you have a Bible, you can open it to John chapter 1. And then as you're doing that, just a couple of announcements to let you know about. Like I said, we've got some services later on today that we'd love for you to come join us for. Um, uh, We've also got uh, regular services on New Year's Eve, just to let you know next week. It's New Year's Eve on Sunday. Uh, But we're having our normal service times and everything, so come to those. We'd love to worship with you then. Um, And then the other thing I just want to let you know about is last week uh, we took a special offering uh, that we take um, each year around this time. And last year it was, or last week it was in, in in the name of um, uh, Youth for Christ in Oregon City, who's wanting to start up a ministry at Oregon City High and eventually uh, Gladstone High and some of the surrounding junior highs as well, middle schools. Um, and um, and I'm, I'm so excited to get to announce that um, we're still kind of counting uh, money as money is still coming in and stuff like that. But right now we're looking at over, over $42,000 was given uh, last Sunday. So yeah. So over $42,000 given to help start up Youth for Christ in Oregon City. It was such a joy to get to share that news uh, with Rebecca and Fred who came and were um, speaking on behalf of Youth for Christ and that we could be able to participate in that way. And uh, several several of you have not only given as sort of a one-time gift, but have begun in an ongoing way supporting uh, this ministry, Youth for Christ, which is really long-term, one of the best things that we can do for them. So thank you for that as well. That probably wasn't even calculated into that number, Um, but that's just an ongoing regular thing for them as the ministry continues on in the future, obviously. Um, So we are in John chapter one, and um, we are going to read through the first 18 verses of this this morning, and I want to talk about what um, this account of the birth of Christ. I love the book of, I love the book of John. I love this letter. I love what what John wrote and his account of the life and ministry of Jesus. Uh, John had an interesting task that he tackled, and it was how to communicate Jesus' life and his ministry to a group of people, uh, many of whom were not of Jewish ancestry. Because uh, when you look at Matthew, you look at Luke, you look at uh, those accounts um, of Jesus' life and his ministry, you get a sense of the fact that it happened uh, within the context of the Jewish faith, and it was written a lot of times with that in mind. And so there were tons of analogies or illustrations or allusions. Lots of, uh, lots of Jewish faith and culture uh, is reflected in those gospel accounts. But John said, I want to write about what Jesus did, and I want to write about it to all of the people that live here who don't know anything about the Jewish faith, who didn't come from that background, who didn't come from a religious background. So as he's writing to Greeks um, in this Hellenistic culture, he goes, how do I communicate the scope and the scale Uh, the big picture of what Jesus really did and what his ministry really meant 
um, to a group of people who don't know the, the, the stories of the Old Testament that we often talk about, who don't know the history and what led up to it. And that's why I think many of us love this letter and love this gospel account, is because it's written in that very way. It's written in a way to communicate Jesus to people who aren't so religious, who don't understand much of the rest of the story, and it's written to a culture that doesn't often understand the rest of the story. And as a result of that, it feels almost cosmically bigger because he has to talk about some things that on a cosmic level are very big, especially in the opening of John. There's a, um, there's a historian who, who, who uh, I read this quote from a historian this last week. It's kind of a, kind of a like, you got to really think about it uh, because it's like kind of this, anyway, he, there's this quote about, about history and how it's communicated. And here he, this is, this is what he says. And I think it's very true, especially of what John writes. He said, um, The progress and the spread of any idea depends not only on its strength and its force, but on the predisposition to receive it of the age to which that idea is presented. See, right? You're like, wait, hold on one more time. He said that this progress, the progress and spread of any idea depends not only on its strength and its force, but on the predisposition to receive it of the age to which that idea is presented. It's not just about the idea, it's about who's listening, and it's about the state of that person's mind and their readiness to accept that idea. And this is why the Gospel of John is so powerful, because it was written to a group of people who weren't ready to accept the idea in the same way that often uh, the more religious groups were. I love John because it's poetic, because it's, uh, it's big, like I said, in scope and in scale, and the way that he communicates what Jesus did in his life. Um, many, many of you, if you attend this church regularly, know that I have a big tattoo on my arm, and it's a, a vine and some branches. I did not get it in prison. Um, <laughs> um, I got it in ministry. But uh, I, I also uh, uh, am not in love with, like, maple syrup or anything like that. It's not that kind of uh, vine and branches. A lot of people ask me about that as well. It's the maple leaves. No, it's the vine and branches from John 15. It's my favorite passage in the Bible. And, uh, and I love it because of the simple idea that it communicates, which is this. When we're not connected to Jesus, we are withering and dying. And when we are connected to Jesus, we are growing and we are alive. And don't many of us wish there was some third option that we could put ourselves in much of the time and say, I don't know that I'd say I'm growing right now, but I wouldn't say I'm withering and dying either. And unfortunately, there is no third option. You're either connected to Christ and you're growing or you're disconnected from him and you immediately begin to wither and you begin to die. And you certainly can't look at producing fruit in your life. And I like that passage and I like what Jesus describes being a Christian there because we have to be connected to him. It is all about Jesus. And we read about that in the Gospel of John again and again. I think probably the most powerful passage in Scripture, in my opinion, is John 1. Uh, what is communicated here is huge. And we could spend months just talking about what's in John 1. And we won't spend months talking about it this morning. The first few verses say this. They say, words, or they say in the beginning was the Word... And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The beginning. 
The beginning, there is a word. John uses this word, logos, translated logos, to describe who Jesus was before being the Jesus that we know of. He was with the Father. He was the Word. He was with God, but he also was God in the beginning. Words have a lot of power. Words have a life of their own. Words communicate, obviously. That's what words do. Uh, The Hebrew people had a lot of respect for words. The Greek language had 200,000 words. The Hebrew language had 10,000 words because they valued the meaning of every single word and they were very careful with words, with the way that they used them um, and the meaning that was behind each and every word. Poets are powerful because they, with words, they can accomplish great things. Poets fill words with life. Words give people courage to do great things and fill people with fear. Words can make people go to war. Words can make people give their very lives. Words can make people take life. Here, when uh, John talks about the word, and he uses this word logos or logos to, to say that, this was an idea in Greek culture that was a big deal. The idea is this, that there's got to be some kind of reason or order or structure holding everything together. It's not just randomly, chaotically floating around out there. That there's got to be some orderly design to things. And, and the idea, the mind behind that is the logos, this idea, this concept, this reason, this, this rational idea that is behind and unifies everything together. And this is the word that John uses when he describes who Jesus is and his relationship with the Father. Think of it this way. If the three members of the Trinity are distinct because of how they operate, Jesus being the word is like the physical actor. And that's why he's the creator. It says that things are created through him, right? If you want to communicate to someone, what do you use? You use words. And so when God desires to communicate with us in the clearest way possible, Jesus, he uses Jesus. The most thorough form of communication possible. He gives us a person. Jesus is the creator, the builder, the cultivator. When it came time for creation to be made, it was the son who did it. And through him, everything was made. So before creation, there was no one to communicate with but God. It was God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, communicating and and sort of eternally communicating and relating to one another. And when God decided that he wanted there to be creation to, again, communicate with, not because he needed it, but because he decided that it would bring him glory and joy to have that, then through the Son, he created everything we see, all of reality. But before this all existed, the Word, the Son, was with him in heaven eternally. So he uses this son to communicate to us and to create us. Now here's why this matters. God's choice of how to communicate to us ultimately was not just a book. It was not a sermon. It was not legions of angels. It was not the things that we saw in the Old Testament like fire and water and storms or a voice coming from the sky. God did not choose to communicate to us primarily in these things, but instead he has chosen to communicate to us through a person, which is Jesus. 
And that's a really big deal. It's what we celebrate this morning, today, this time of year. The incarnate Son of God. That he came in the flesh. That this is how God said, you're going to know me. And this is how I'm going to make a way to be with you. And so Jesus, in the beginning, was always with God, and nothing that exists was created apart from him. That every one of us and everything was created through him and by him, known by him. And we go on, and John says in verses 6 through 8, there was a man who was sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light but came to bear witness about the light. This seems a little random right here. You're talking about huge cosmic scale type stuff, universe forming and shaping stuff, and then we cut away to a guy who's just telling us that the word is coming, right? But this is important because God does this. God warns us. He tells us. He's a great communicator, it turns out. And we spend much of life And many would say, and we often are wondering, why am I not hearing from God? Why do I not know what God's doing? Why is God not being clear with me? And we look at his word and we look at the course of history and the way that he has related to us. And we see that we don't, the reason that we don't hear God has nothing to do with him not talking to us and him not communicating to us. And the reason that we don't know things are going to happen is often not because God hasn't warned us things are going to happen. It's because we simply have not heard or listened or been frankly paying attention. There was word of a Messiah, a savior, somebody who would come and permanently deliver God's people. Lots of people had their own idea of what this person would be like. Most of them thought he would be some kind of a ruler. And so God wants to make sure that the way is paid for Jesus. And so, so John, who in and of himself, his biggest qualification for being this person is clearly not his physical appearance because he's kind of crazy. And he probably, even the way that he communicates, because he's kind of crazy. But it's the fact that from his very conception and birth as a person, God's hand was involved. And so John's ministry is formed more than anything out of both, out of really saying like, God has brought me here and, and interacted with me and miraculously intervened in the course of my life and my family's life. And so I have to tell you about him. It's the reason I'm even here. I yell at my kids all the time. (laughs) But it's not the things that I thought I'd be yelling at them about. It's not because they're doing bad things. It's things like the most basic instructions in life. And it's just because usually they're not listening to me. It's like, okay, now rinse. That's like a big thing that I'm yelling at my kids all the time. I'll watch a kid start brushing their teeth and just zone out doing something. And I have to yell. I have to yell, rinse your mouth out while they're brushing their teeth. Much of what I yell is just basic instructions for daily living. It is not like anger because they've done something wrong. But it amazes me how clear I can be and how little they can hear because (laughs) of how often they're not really paying attention. And they have learned the frequency and tones of our voices and they have drowned these things out. And no one else's kids are like that probably. We live very, very, very obsessively focused on the world in which we live, on ourselves and on our worlds and on our lives. And because we do this, 
we often don't think that God wants us to think about something outside of our world, outside of our life, outside of our family, outside of our situation. We're not looking that way. And so John came, and his job was to come and say, hey, everybody, remember, the answer, the Savior, the solution isn't going to come from you. Sorry. And that's exactly how uh, they heard it, and it's why they didn't like the message. Because at this point, believe it or not, even though people were saying, we really want a Savior, we really want a Messiah, we really want someone here to help us and rescue us and save us, even though they were saying that, really, in reality, they were like, we're going to figure this out on our own. We'll take care of it. We'll be fine. People were putting a tremendous amount of effort into fixing the problems of the world, especially the religious people, of fixing the problem of how do we relate to our God. And John came and he said to them, someone is coming. A solution is coming. Someone is going to bring light into darkness, but that light is going to come from somewhere else, not where you're looking. We are too busy looking for saviors and helpers and solutions and power here in this world, and we're too busy trying to be those things ourselves. If I just keep my head down and I just push on, I do not need to keep my eye out for some kind of a savior. I think there's like nothing more annoying than if you're really involved in like a political race or an election or something like that, and someone says to you like, you know, but really it's God, right? And really it's Jesus. I think, I think that's really annoying to people, honestly, who are really involved and follow those things. Because they're kind of like, oh, well, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, no, he is, you're right, yeah. But, you know, really though, there's this thing going on with this person and I really care about it, right? And that's because, like, like when, we're, when we're focused on, like, how are we going to figure everything out here amongst all of us, and somebody tries to remind you that there's, like, a bigger thing going on, and that really God is the only one who's going to fix things and save us, that the more invested we are in trying to figure out how we can do it, the more sort of irritating that is to us. And we just kind of find it irritating and sort of annoying. Like, yeah, okay, yeah, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, no, 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 totally, yeah, you're right. It's like you're killing yourself to be a good parent. And then somebody goes like, oh, you're not, the, you're not the real parent, right? It's like God's, oh, yeah, okay, yeah, and yeah, he is, you're right, yeah. But I just spent all my time killing myself to be a great parent, so thanks for saying that to me, you know? <laughs> How do we care and be invested, right? Want it to go well, try to do our part, and yet keep an eye out for this Savior who's going to come. Because apparently, he's the one who's going to fix it all anyway, right? John came in the desert saying this, the Messiah is coming. There's light coming. He didn't just say there's a Messiah coming. He said there's light coming. Okay, okay. We'll, we'll start with just the most basic concept of good and evil, right and wrong, bad and happy that we can with darkness and light. There is a light coming to bring light to the darkness. That's what John said. That's something everyone should want. He goes on in verses 9 through 13 and says this, The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This is the reason that he came. He came 
to be light. My family and I moved to Oregon about six months ago. We miss light. <laughs> We're adjusting to that. We love it. Don't get me wrong. We love it. You know, no regrets. But we realize when it starts to get to the, I mean, when we first moved here, we were sick of the light because it got dark at like, like 1030 at night and we couldn't get our kids to go to bed. And then they wake you up and it's just as bright outside when you wake up at like four in the morning or whatever, when they wake up. But now it's the opposite. Well, what can we kill for some light? And so I love this time of year because it's really, it's really dark um, and there's all these lights out, right? And it's great. We drove around looking at Christmas lights last night. Christmas lights work really well when it's dark outside, turns out. You can see them really, really well. It is a very big deal to say that Jesus made everything and then entered into that creation, the author of it, and was still unknown by it. John goes to great lengths to make it clear to us just how unknown and ignored and rejected this light ultimately ever was, ultimately was. People had been told ahead of time. There was prophecy. He fulfilled every prophecy. I mean, if you were really paying attention to these things, he fulfilled them. Everything that was to be expected happened, and yet he was still not received. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, which is a real shame because of why he came. He came to make them children of God. He came to make everyone who would believe children of God, to be born again into the family that they were intended to always be a part of. This is the light. The fact that we can exist without a light inside of us somehow, that we can exist in darkness, that you can live in flesh but not have the light, and that that still means death, that the creation was never intended to live without that thing. Christmas is a time that we allow happy things to overshadow the truth of the situation in which we're in. Now, I think we all agree we like the happy things, and usually pastors are the guys who get up and try to bum everybody out, I think. We get up and go like, let's see past this, and let's not just care about this, and let's not just do this, because we want really everybody to understand like what it all is about, what it really means, right? The truth is that this is actually the time of year that we ought to most be reflecting upon why Jesus had to come, which is the brokenness, which is the death, which is the darkness, it ends up being the time of year that is so, we are so focused on the things that really do bring us happiness and joy here that it's hard for us to make that connection, right? I mean, Christmas, the holidays, is like the time when humanity is most hopeful, most joyful, most happy. And yet the whole point of it is that we're dead, that we're dying, that we're living in darkness, and Jesus came into the world so that that wouldn't have to be the case anymore. And reconciling those two things can be really difficult. It kind of gives you whiplash. You see, Christmas is in a sense about our inadequacy. And don't we all love that? You ever gotten a gift <laughs> that highlights your inadequacy, right? This is like... A gym membership, great, thanks. <laughs> Somebody gave me a Dave Ramsey book once. They're like, oh yeah, you know, you said you were like in a bunch of debt, so here you go. 
yeah, great. I mean, this is good. Thanks for reminding me about that. Well, I'm opening this, right? There's those books, Four Dummies, the Four Dummies books, right? Yeah, right. You know where I'm going with this, right? I once found a, uh, bu- the Bible for dummies in a, in, a, in a thrift store, and I bought it. I just had to buy it and have it, because I was like, this is going to be really useful to, like, give this to somebody, right? Just make them feel bad or something. You think you need this, right? Right? What if, I, what if like, I bought the staff here, uh, those books for all their ministries, right? Just to be really nice and supportive. Like, hey, Dave, here you go. You know, you know choir for, for dummies. Here's Sue, children's ministry for dummies. Josh, youth ministry for dummies, right? There you go. It'll be good. You'll like it, right? That wouldn't feel very good, right? Several years ago, when Ellie was starting to lead worship more and more, she was starting to do it for our women's ministry. And I remember her mentioning to me, man, I really want to like, I want to go online and like, you know, you can look at YouTube videos or like look at like little classes and stuff online to be able to play guitar a little bit better because she hadn't played it much before, right? What if like tomorrow for Christmas, she opens up a present and it's guitar lessons, right? How does that feel if that's the thing that you do? That doesn't feel very good. That's not what I got. That's not, anyway. (laughs) It'd be like, oh, thanks. You wanted that, right? Do I, do I need that? Like, is that what you're saying? Do I need to lose weight? Do I need to learn this thing? Yeah, you, you know what that's maybe like. To receive even a gift that is nothing but really a reminder of your inadequacy. We don't like that. Why would we want to talk about that? Why would we want to focus on that? Why is Ed choosing to talk about that right now? Our inadequacy. Jesus coming was painful for him. It was a sacrifice for him. But it was the only way that we could have life because of the darkness and because of the death that came into creation. And if we don't really grasp that, then we cannot ever really grasp the meaning of Christmas, what we are doing here, what we celebrate We have to understand and we have to acknowledge and we have to even own the darkness before we can ever really truly appreciate the gift of the light that was given to us. Christmas is a reminder that we are dead without Jesus Christ. It is not about the beauty of all God's creation. That's not what Christmas is about. Christmas is about death coming to life and what it took for that to happen. And it's why we say that Jesus is our best gift. John tells us here that even when the light came, people did not receive him. People saw and heard and even experienced his power and his authority, but they still did not believe. Which means either they didn't know that they were in darkness, or they didn't know that the light was truly light. That whatever they saw in Jesus did not make them feel, for whatever reason, like this was the light, this was the Savior. It can be so easy for us to be proud of ourselves, for the people that we're becoming, the things that we're learning, the ways that we're growing. I've learned this even in church, that it's important in church when good things happen to celebrate them, to remember them, to talk about them. But it's often hard because the more that you do that as a church, the easier it becomes to then just get proud of yourself and to then feel like, you know what, I think we're doing it. I think we're fixing things. I think we're making things better. Now, if we can just keep going with that, God will be really happy with us as a church. But the only problem with that is that that's not what the gospel says really fixes things, right? What the gospel says is because of what God has done, I do this thing. Not, 
I do this thing so that God will do something for me. And it seems like semantics, but it's not. It's a very important difference. And that's why we preach the gospel over and over and over again. Again and again and again. And if, and if, you're, and if you're, you're ever sitting here and you're like, oh, here we go. He's talking about the gospel again. That probably means you need to hear it more. Because every point that we talk about something in Scripture, if we don't talk about it in light of the gospel, then it's incomplete in a sense. And so we, we have to understand that. And that's what John is saying about the word and the word coming and what that has meant. And so this is the reason, so that the light could come into the darkness, so that the light can fill up the darkness, because the light conquers darkness. It doesn't take much light, it turns out, to illuminate darkness. And so we read in verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is how it happened. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Christ, through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side he has made him unknown. This is the incarnation. The way in which he came, the way in which the light came into the darkness was like this. This word incarnation means when something comes into the flesh. We use it specifically when talking about the idea of a God, a spirit coming and living, embodying flesh, the physical embodiment of that spirit. This word uh, flesh is sarks, and it means human nature. It doesn't actually mean sin or sinful nature, which is important, right? Because that means that Jesus came and lived in the flesh, but he wasn't sinful. He didn't sin. That, mean, that, that means when you read the word flesh a lot in the New Testament, it's actually this word, and it's actually not talking about something that's inherently bad. It's talking about something that is corruptible, something that, that brings temptation with it and weakness, but Jesus came in the flesh, but it doesn't mean that he came and sinned. It doesn't mean that he came and blew it, like everyone else who lives in the flesh. This is why the light matters so much. Because without the light, the flesh is bad. It's all you got. Laws of flesh, slavery to the flesh, rules of the flesh. These are things we read in the New Testament. Because they're simply referring to when you have nothing but the flesh to depend on. And Jesus would sacrifice many aspects of who he is in order to do this. He gave up a lot in order to be incarnate, in order to come and live in flesh, to be born as a baby, to live a life like many of us have lived, and to, uh, and to do that physically as a person. He gave up a lot. It says that he dwelled among us, which is like the, the language used here is really like to put up a tent and actually live somewhere. So he really camped out among us. And why this matters is because it's referring to the, the tent, the tabernacle, of which there was a room even inside there. And if you wanted to encounter God, you had to be a very specific person. You had to go into this place. You had to be a, in a certain state. And only then could you have hope of encountering God in any form. That was what it used to take 
It used to be Moses having to go up on a mountain. You gotta be Moses, he's kind of a big deal. There's not a lot of him at the time. You gotta be Moses to go up on the mountain and only then can you see a fraction of who God is in a veiled way without dying. And so John says he came and, and lived and dwelled among us, here, with us. We don't go to the temple, we don't go into the room, we don't have to be that person anymore. He said, I'm gonna come, I'm gonna veil myself so much so that I can just simply be incarnate and dwell amongst you. God himself made a dwelling, made a home amongst us. This is the physical embodiment of something. Jesus is the physical embodiment of God. Love, joy, hope, peace. He is physical embodiment of those things. You ever seen the movie Inside Out? It's a movie about emotions that are phys have physical bodies. My kids love this movie. It's, it, it's easy for them to relate to it uh, because of like when you're angry, yes, you look like that guy who's red and he has fire coming out of his head. And when you're depressed and sad, you look like that kind of sad lady who's blue. She's physically blue, right? Yeah, that is how I feel. That is how I feel. The physical embodiment of some of the most important things, Jesus was that. He lived as us. Think about this. He lived as us. If you wanna know how much he lived as us, look at the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus prays to the Father, okay? Desperately prays to the Father and says, God, if it's your will, please take this cup from me. And does the cup get taken from him? No. Jesus knows what it's like to get on your knees and pray to the Father for something and not get what you want. That's how much he knows what it's like to be in our position. The way that Jesus lived, the life that he lived, he knew. It is so very hard for us to believe that this is actually true because it is so hard to imagine how this could have worked. Like how in the world could this have worked? Was he perfect? If so, then he wouldn't have been anything normal. I mean, if he was really perfect, he would not have been anything close to what we consider to be a normal person. If I'm around a three-year-old and they're good, I don't trust them. I'm like, <laughs> nope, doesn't make sense. Does not make sense to me, right? If they're being good, I'm suspicious. Like, I'm really gonna watch that one because this isn't how three-year-olds normally act, right? This isn't how people normally act. So like what, was he a three-year-old who was good? What did that look like, right, to see that? And when we try to really wrap our minds around the perfection of him and his holiness, we go, okay, maybe, but that would make him totally different. But then we read that he's actually, like, lived in the flesh. And so we say, well, then if he lived in the flesh, then how could he really have been perfect? And that's why when we look at something like the Sermon on the Mount, which is what we've been studying for the last few months, Jesus' teaching on righteousness, we realize this is what it looks like, right? That's why the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount is so revolutionary, because he's saying, here's what it looks like to be truly righteous, and it's actually not that crazy when he starts to explain it. It actually starts to make a lot of sense when you look at the world around us, and it starts to make a lot of sense why we would never come up with any of that stuff, but this is something that God would have to give us, something that the light would have to bring us, that is, the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus filling up, illuminating the darkness with truth and saying, here's how things really ought to be. And we read here, from, for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. One of my favorite books and movies, they made a couple of movies of it, is Les Miserables. 
and I love the book. It's huge. I love the movies. Um, I love them because it's, it's about grace. And there's a character in the movie, Jean Valjean, he's this criminal, and he robs a priest. He steals all of his silver, beats him up or something. And there's a scene in, in like the Liam Neeson version, which I, which I watched growing up, you know, and um, growing up, I watched Liam Neeson, not really, but I watched it. And, and, and Liam Neeson comes up to him and, and the police have caught him with the silver that's been stolen. And he comes up, they bring him back to the priest and they say, we found him. We found this criminal. He lied. He told us that you gave it to him. And the priest says, oh yeah, I did. I gave it to him. And Jean Valjean says, uh, he says, he says, what? And the guys go away and the, and the priest says, I'm giving it all to you. I want you to have it. And I want you to have a new life. And, and what he says in that moment, I love it because I think it's the most accurate thing. Jean Valjean just says, why are you doing this? Why are you doing this? He just says, that. why are you doing this again and again? When given grace upon grace, it is so foreign to us. It makes so little sense that the only thing that we really would know to say is, why are you doing this? Why would you do this? And what he says to him is he says, because with this silver, I have ransomed you from a life of sin and hatred. I have bought your life with this. So go and promise me that you won't live that life anymore. And he says, I promise. Grace upon grace is what he gives us, is what the light has brought into the darkness. Not just grace, but grace upon grace. So much grace that we simply could not fathom it. Jesus has given us life. I have a really good friend who was diagnosed with cancer five years ago, stage three melanoma. They said, you have a 5% chance of living past five years. Kids and a wife, and it was devastating. And when he called his doctor, they said, so we have this treatment. It's called anti-PD-1. And this treatment is probably the best treatment. It's the one that has the best chance of working. And he said, great, when do I start? And he said, you can't take it. He said, it's in trial. It's in clinical trials. And the way that it works is you need to do the things that have been approved first. And then if those don't work, then you can take this one. And so he did two different treatments. They, 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 it felt as though they were killing him more. And it was years of pain and years of nothing until finally he qualified for the third one. And they gave it to him, and it worked, and he got better. And he was telling me about this because it was right around the same time that Jimmy Carter, the president, had been diagnosed with the same kind of melanoma. They found it in his brain. And they announced at the press conference, when he found out about it, he said, uh, I'm taking this new treatment. It's really promising and I'm really hopeful. And my friend said, I'm so happy for him that he gets to take anti-PD-1. But how screwed up is that, that I had to take two treatments that had to fail before I could get to it? That we know the thing that probably will, will work, that is most likely to work, and yet you can't take it, right? That you have to do all this other stuff. And Jimmy Carter took it and, it, and he got better. I mean, to know that there is something that will save us, that will give us life, but to for any reason not take it is crazy, right? Literally anything that would get in the way, any hurdle, any step that we have to take that doesn't involve the solution, the cure, seems like insanity to us. Because it is. Our Father has given us the greatest gift, which is His Son. 
the very son that was with him in the beginning, that created everything, God said, how's it going to have to happen? He's going to have to live incarnate as one of them. That is the only way. He'll have to suffer. He'll have to die ultimately. And we are grateful that he did because it gives us life. And so we stand in awe above all else. When we look at what John is saying here, when we look at what John is outlining in John 1, we stand in awe. That is the first thing that we can do, is just say, this is huge. It is unfathomable. And so we, we worship and we are grateful to our God because of it. That is the second thing that we do. And then the third thing that we do is that we tell people, is that we say, this is life. What's hard about it is it involves talking about death. But the fact is, darkness is there, and death is there, and it's happening. Having life is huge. And we struggle with the tension between this. Having something that is as familiar as Christmas, that is as familiar as this story that we all know, this account that we all know, and yet seeing the meaning of it each year, recognizing it and being reminded of it, being reminded of the scope and the scale of it and what it has cost and what it means and the fact that it gives us life. And so we stand in awe, we worship, and we tell others about it. Let's pray. Father, we come before you right now in awe that before time began, that the word was with you and that through him, you created all of us and everything, and that you chose to also through him communicate to us in a person. God, we thank you for not just sending angels, for not just giving us a book, for not just speaking to us in a pillar of fire or water or in a cloud or in a loud booming voice from the sky. We thank you for giving us a person. We thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you for what he is and who he is. We thank you that he conquered death, that he conquered sin, and that we can have life because of that, Lord. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Today we celebrate the miracle of God himself coming and living in the flesh amongst us. Um, the miracle of birth. Birth is already a miracle. But this is a miracle that we celebrate that is greater than any other that has ever been known, which is that God came down in the form of a baby lived a life like us, and so for that reason, we worship and we celebrate him. The reason that he did it was grace upon grace, not because we have deserved it, but because he made us in his image and he loves us so much that he has made a way to him. And so the best way that we can worship him is to love one another, to love them in his name, and to heap grace upon grace to each other. Amen? All right. Merry Christmas. If we don't see you later, have a great Christmas.